and welcome to World Free Press Day. You're on 3CR, Independent Radical Radio, and to Tuesday Home Time with Jane Bartlett until 6pm tonight. On the program today, we'll be hearing more about World Free Press Day with Jacob Gregg, journalist and activist. The work of the group Witness Against Torture to end the torture and incarceration of men, Alan Shahinga is a main coordinator of that group. Dr. Margie Beavers from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War and the group International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons on why we don't need nuclear subs and missiles to make us feel secure and what we need instead. Issues pertaining to Palestine with the Executive Officer of Australian Palestine Advocacy Network Jessica Morrison, but where would World Free Press Day be without Kevin Healy and this week that was? A week, Jane Lister, when there's good news and bad news. First, the bad news is we're only just over halfway through. The good news is we're just over halfway through. As the big issue that gripped the Canberra press gallery and therefore the nation was whether Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Anthony Albinguzi, who suffering from COVID may well have been, Albinguzi should have attended a particular press event on his first day out of isolation after his doctor told him to go slowly and big Supremo scuttled in more lash son, a.k.o. Scummo, said he had been more active when laid up with COVID than Anthony had been active. And we all thought, doesn't the future of government for capitalism in this country hang on some critical ideological threats? And a couple of strokes of bad luck for Scomo, as the previous week he and big economic guru Josh Frydem Icebergs boasted the unemployment rate, which at least they knew, would fall below 4%, thanks to their economic expertise, and then out came the figure, not below 4%. And then they assured us it would be a a um, lot higher under a socialist government. And this week they assured us inflation would be about 3 point something, and would you believe it came up at 5.1%. Would the Reserve Bank increase interest rates today? Forcing Scamo to point out this shows unemployment races out of control, inflation soars and interest rates rise at the very thought that there may be a socialist government. Imagine how unemployment, inflation and interest rates would look if there was a socialist government, he warned as Josh nodded wisely. Uh, But this has happened under your watch. This has nothing to do with us. It's caused by international issues outside our control. But you just said it was the Socialist Party's fault. International issues outside our control and the Socialist Party. So when the figures are good, it's nothing to do with the government. It's it's outside your control. Of course not. It's due to our responsible management of the economy. And it must be, because again, Josh nodded wisely. The U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world's big gun sent to the Solomons to set them straight threatened without blushing the U.S. of could not rule out military action against the Solomons if evil China established a train killer base there. 
satire simply can't compete. It would be satirical if it wasn't so serious. The US of, which has train killer bases all over the Pacific and Asia, many surrounding evil China, we'd think at least they'd be slightly embarrassed. <clears throat> but then threatening the Solomons makes sense because the bully always takes on the small guy, even if it fails to learn from history that the small guys have been beating it up and it's, it's been forced to retreat in a military shambles these past 50 years. Go Solomons! The big gun, Daniel Critton Brink of War, did say, we reiterate our respect for sovereignty of the Solomon Islands, as long as they do what we tell them. Back here, our minister for being offensive and trained killing Constable Peter Duffer was being very offensive toward evil China, even resorting to paraphrasing a dangerous leftist author, war is peace-like. And to achieve peace, we must pour trillions and trillions into the bottomless coppers of the merchants of death, an appropriate and fitting way to celebrate our great national day, the day that honed our cherished true blue Aussie values by landing on the wrong beach in a military disaster. And as Constable Duffer prepares either to invade the Solomons, yet again on the coattails of the U.S. Or even to invade evil China, which would make the previous military disasters look like a game of marbles, we asked him whether he supported the practice in the days of yore of those who declare war, leading the train killers into battle. And surprisingly, Pete did not support the practice. Like you know, like no. But even if he doesn't lead the train killers into battle, Constable Duffer has shown great courage under fire because notice his election posters have his head on them. Not sure that's such a great idea. And in a feature article about him, former caring business class big economic guru Joe Hackey, the workers, said Pete has authenticity. My God, that's even more depressing. He means it. Pete's successor as Minister for Keeping Us Secure, Karen Ed Screws Things Up, said the Solomon's deal showed evil China was interfering in the true blue Aussie election, presumably with Socialist Party support, showing Karen has attended the, like, Constable Duffer School of Logic, like. One certainty is Pete just won't shut up, will he? One day, yelling evil China had bribed the Solomons, our foreign aid is purely for the benefit of our Pacific family, as we like to call them, especially now, Pete. Like, yes, you know, as long as it, you know, like benefits the, you know, like caring as true was he business class. And then there's his declaration of war is peace. And then next day, Pete said we'd be shocked at the extent of evil Chinese spying. Like, you know. Goodness me, how shocking, Pete. How did we find out? Like, you know, like our spies told us like. And this case against a lawyer that has to be held in camera, something about Timor Leste? Yes, like his client revealed Trubler was he had been spying, you know, on the Timor Leste government. Oh, that must be a serious threat. Um, should we invade them? We can't, like, you know, rule it out. It must have been a matter of national importance, a threat to our national security. It was, like, very important to Woodside with profits, to its bottom line, like, security. But, like, our spying is for, you know, peaceful purposes, like, 
you know, fossil fuel extraction. And good news on that front, the election of Jose Ramos Horta has Woodside with profits very excited, popping the corks as the revival of its delayed Timor Sea gas proposal is looking very promising. And just a pity that poor Woodside with, along with Santosas, the profits, finished almost at the bottom of a Bloomberg ranking of the world's major fossils. And given the record of most of them, that's not saying a lot. While their relentless pursuit of more and more fossils won't do much to improve their ranking, their rank ranking, but they assure us they are committed to zero emissions by 2050, so presumably they'll start doing something about it in roughly 2049. If the planet hasn't fried to death, and anyway, they tell us zero emissions won't mean zero emissions. We'll still have to extract and use fossils because, well, because they're there and they bring in lots and lots of lovely profit. And they'll pay good money to plant a tree somewhere. That'll save whatever's left of the planet circa 2050. Even if the tree never actually gets planted, Woodside with profits paid for it in good faith. The good faith that it could go on spewing its zero emissions. Anyway, hayseed and sheepshit party giant mind Matt Canavan of Cole said zero emissions by 2050 was now dead. It's all fossils, fossils, fossils. Zooming emissions by 2050 and with fossils like Matt around, it shows a caring business class government would continue its dedicated campaign against climate change if there is such a thing. And to cheer us up even more, Socialist Party Supremo Anthony Albinguzi promised a Sydney shock jock he would never, ever, never, ever introduce a carbon tax after last week promising he would approve new coal mines. So it's looking promising for the planet and its creatures. Our only hope is Anthony was being clever because the term tax was imposed on a carbon price by former big supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses. A great big new tax. A great big new tax. Which nonetheless remains a price on pollution, a carbon price whose non-payment is yet another invaluable subsidy to the fossils, adding to their huge profits, which are, as we all know, good for all of us. So, as no price on carbon emissions is good for all of us, Thank you, Sydney Shock Jock and Anthony. Oh, and Matt and Scummo and all of them. Well, perhaps especially for Matt for spilling the beans, which by 2050 will be able to be grown in the tropical Antarctic, if there's any humans alive to eat them. But how nauseating was the veneration of war is peace, and as we say every year, the media promotion of children wearing slouch hats and all the medals of some relative or other eulogizing war and trained killing, while the same media tells us totalitarian regimes brainwash dear little children. So nauseating that I couldn't turn on the telly to watch the footy until the ABC radio announced the bounce due to the jingoistic pre-game crap. But as I always watch it with the ABC radio commentary, I never get to hear the ads. But there's one with an elderly couple of my vintage sitting at a table with the woman looking very smug and clever as she reveals on her phone some McDonald's feature as they prepare to bombard their bodies with all that salt, sugar and fat. And I think there's two possibilities. They've made a joint suicide pact or she'll only pretend to eat her so-called meal and plans to kill him.
On the media, why do they think some things are news when they're clearly not? Like a headline in the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, Businesses Pass On Increased Costs. What's the news in that? It'd only be news if they didn't. Next to that, interesting juxtapositioning, Labor to Act on Unpaid Super. Workers would be able to take their caring employer to court over unpaid super. Good grief, doesn't the Socialist Party realise this would push prices up even more, hurting those very workers? Myopia, myopia. What a wonderful gesture if workers gave a little back to their caring employers and said, yes, yes, you can keep the money you've stolen from us. Caring employers would so appreciate it. And don't forget, Scummo and Josh have promised stagnant wages will stop being stagnant, will increase after the election. Interesting that, after the big events week after week, the Grand Prix, the sundry fashion weeks, train killer celebrations, they obviously decided enough is enough, that it would be overkill to give even a mention, even a line, even a word to May Day. Caring employers of the world unite. So on behalf of the media that seems to have missed it, hope you had a happy May Day. Good afternoon. And do be sure to listen to Kevin tomorrow morning between 9 and 10 for City Limits. I think 3CR is the voice of the people speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home we'll drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au we love a good book3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. I'm going to read two short articles about World Press Day. The United Nations General Assembly declared May 3 to be World Free Press Day, or just World Press Day, observed to raise awareness of the importance of freedom of the press and remind governments of their duty to respect and uphold the right to freedom of expression enshrined under Article 19 of the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights and marking the anniversary of the Weehawk Declaration a statement of free press principles put together by African newspaper journalists in Winhock in 1991. 3 May acts as a reminder to governments of the need to respect their commitment to press freedom and is also a day of reflection among media professionals about issues of press freedom and professional ethics. Just as importantly, 
World Press Freedom Day is a day of support for media who are targets for the restraint or abolition of press freedom. It is also a day of remembrance for those journalists who lost their lives in the pursuit of a story. And on this World Free Press Day, I'm joined by journalist and activist Jacob Gregg. And Jacob, you're going to talk about two aspects of this day, during the Assange and the war in the Ukraine. Happy World Press Freedom Day, Jan. Thank you. <laughs> Although it's hard to be happy in this environment we're at at the moment, what with wars all over the place and seem to be even getting bigger and Peter Dutton, our wonderful Defence Minister, saying things like the only way to have peace is to prepare for war. But nonetheless, we, we do what we can. Mate, World Press Freedom Day, where can I start with it? It's been around since, when, 1993? It's an interesting little phenomenon, and it's probably, um, to my mind at least, indicative of the the solution, or it's seen as a solution, or not even a solution, a um, addressing of the problem is a problem in itself, because World Freedom Day was established as part of a a response to a document called the Windhoek Declaration, which was about press freedom, particularly in Africa. Windhoek, of course, being the capital of Namibia, and there was concern, concerns about all these third world tin pot dictatorships not letting people speak freely and hardly a word about things like the Murdoch press and, and all the rest of the Western presses. But where we are at the moment is that with the war in Ukraine, people are using World Press Freedom Day for a number of reasons. First of all, and foremost, as they always will, to attack Russia and talk about the restrictions that are being put on reporting on Ukraine war in Russia without even discussing the state of reporting on the Ukraine war in the Western media. And the other issue people are raising is, and it's a, it's a valid issue and a, and a necessary issue, is the way the reporting is treating white European victims of war as opposed to the way the media in the West reported on, you know, people like Iraqis, Afghanis and, of course, Palestinians. That's being raised, but still nobody is right. Nobody, while that's an important factor, nobody's actually raising that the Western media is describing the war in Ukraine in anything other than a US-NATO-centred vision, I guess. Anyone would be forgiven for listening to the the media, and I'm not just talking about the right-wing media, but even the left-wing media seems to be falling into the narrative of the world situation and the world world economy and world politics are just fine and dandy, and there's this wonderful liberal democracy called the Ukraine that everything was going just beautifully in until Mad Vlad, the Hitler-like impaler, suddenly decided to invade Ukraine for no reason whatsoever. And nobody is raising the issues of why what we're seeing in Ukraine is happening. Well, would you like to raise them now? I, I guess I'd start by talking about the news that China is entering into a agreement with the Solomon Islands to host a military establishment on the Solomon Islands. And the reaction that's getting from the US and Australia, Scott Morrison called it crossing the red line because they're going to have 
a military base. That is what the Chinese and the Solomon say. It's going to be a military base in the Solomon Islands, and that's crossing a red line. Whereas in Russia, the expansion of NATO has moved nuclear warheads right up to within 100 kilometres of the Russian border, aiming at Russian cities. And the expansion of NATO, which was looking like including Ukraine, is being seen in Russia as a much more direct and much more immediate threat than the potential of a military base in in the Solomon Islands. So when NATO started its expansion process, there was an an understanding that NATO would not expand further east through um, to the Russian borders. And of course, they went through to Poland, they went through to the Czech Republic, Romania. Now they're looking at the at Ukraine, and Ukraine is asking for NATO membership. And the Russians have said for a long, long time that would be a red line. And we've known that. Everybody has everybody has known. Everybody has known that the attempt to push NATO further east would potentially cause a conflict with Russia. And they decided to do that anyway, you know, and Obama actually halted arms sales to the Ukraine precisely for that reason, because he didn't want to inflame tensions with Russia. And those arms embargoes were lifted by Trump. Arms sales have increased under Biden. So we've known that this was coming for a long, long time. And now it's not just the fact that Ukraine is fighting against Russia. We've got NATO fighting against Russia because of all the arms that have been pumped into Ukraine in the last month or so. It's not Ukraine v. Russia, and it never was Ukraine v. Russia. Um, It's a proxy war. It's a proxy war. It's a NATO versus Russia war. And by NATO, obviously the biggest nation in NATO is the United States. And the United States is, is pushing this war. And they've known it's coming. For example, I'll, you mentioned I'll talk about Julian Assange, and, and I will, but we've known WikiLeaks released a document in, two, um, I'm not sure when they released it, maybe 2013, but a document from 2008 that was a State Department document that said that if they support Ukraine, if they move um, for NATO, uh, Ukraine inclusion in NATO, if they sell arms to Ukraine, it will be viewed as a hostile attack by Russia and Russia will do this, 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 this and the other. Rather than using that information to say we shouldn't do this, it seems that that is exactly what they've done. When we have these leaks, these State Department documents that say if we do A, B and C, then X, Y, Z will happen, and they proceed to do A, B, and C, then one can only assume that what they intended to happen was X, Y, and Z. And that's what we're seeing here. But surely the fact also, Jacob, that there's still NATO, that's a a Cold War coalition, surely. It is. NATO is a Cold War War coalition, but it's more more than that now. It's being seen as a political entity in its own right. NATO is, I guess, the the model that things like Quad and AUKUS are based on. 
you know, NATO is a Cold War relic. Well, it's obviously not a relic because the Cold War obviously isn't over is what we're, what we're seeing now. But I think what it's doing, you'll, you'll notice, for example, I don't know whether you've noticed, Jan, but in the last few years, every world leader, when talking about international disputes, whether it be China in the South China Sea or the West American Sea, as I like to call it, or um, Russia on its borders or anywhere else, people use the term the global liberal rules-based order. Have you heard that term, the rules-based order? Just for the last few years. And I think part of what um, is happening with NATO and also happening with AUKUS and the other, and the other groupings that are, that are being set up all over the place is in some way a, a Western attempt at having international groupings to decide what is the rules-based order, where they give the rules and we follow the orders, as an alternative to the United Nations Security Council. See, at the moment, up until very recently, the United Nations Security Council is, is seen, rightly or wrongly, um, by the international community as the body who decides what military actions are appropriate, are legitimate, are legal, and which aren't. But the problem, of course, is that China and Russia both have permanent seats on the Security Council. So NATO is being um, pushed and pushed and pushed, as are the other groupings, using the terms international rules-based order or liberal rules-based order to say that regardless of what the rest of the world have, considers, this is the rules and Russia is breaking the rules. China, by enforcing territorial claims in the South China Sea are breaking the rules and whereas actions undertaken by Western countries primarily Australia NATO the United States well primarily are seen as legitimate so it's a redefining of what is and isn't allowed in world affairs and I think that's an important part of what's happening in Ukraine at the moment and it's also capitalism fighting itself of course of course people are talking about all people the western media and left and right here are talking about uh, vladimir putin as if he's they say he's trying to rebuild the glory of the soviet union that he's still got the soviet union in his brain he's a cold warrior of the of the old communist regime but that could be hardly further from the truth as far, po politically Putin sits closer to to Trump than he does communism. He's a right-wing commercial oligarch, and that's who he supports. What we're seeing is not a battle of ideas between the you know in the old Cold War sense, but what we're seeing is a competition between one sector of capital and another sector of capital. The Western capital needs to ensure, needs to stamp its mark on Europe and on Eastern Europe in order to cut out the competition. And that's what's, happened. that's what's been happening with NATO and Russia. And that's why NATO was pushing right up to the Russian borders. That's why the Western world was providing Ukraine with arms, even while we had the pogroms against the, the ethnically Russian areas of eastern Ukraine. I, I mean, people forget 
people forget that only a few years ago we had neo-Nazi, well, not even neo-Nazi, they were the same old Nazis, still using SS insignia and, and stuff on, on their gear, paramilitaries undertaking pogroms on ethnically Russian areas in eastern Ukraine. It's not like Ukraine was a perfectly harmonious society. This has been a country in civil war. Also, the fact or the problem for the West, the interdependence between the West and China and Russia with their trade. Yeah, well, it's all about trade. Every every war that's ever been has been been about access to resources. Word is that the old Trojan War was about access to the copper mines. But the world is so interconnected now that we have three, three or four major capital groupings and it's about fighting each other over markets. You, you can't talk about Ukraine and people aren't even talking about Ukraine without mentioning the pipeline going through the Black Sea. That's a big part of it. But we're all dependent on each other. We're having a, a situation where no country can exist without trade and relationships or no block can exist without trade and relationships with the other blocks. And so what it's all about is negotiating better deals at the point of a gun for access to resources and trade routes. Australia fits into it, well, a number of ways. First of all, it's definitely a part of the the Western camp. It's part of the Western camp. It always was, of course, but particularly in regard to its um, being part of AUKUS, it's now like an official military part of the Western Empire. We're now stepping up our um, sales and donations, of course, to Ukraine. We're backing the Western NATO every step of the way. But more importantly, while this is between Russia and NATO, part of the, the background to it is, of course, the C word, China. By cutting Russia out of the picture and by placing and by stamping Western economic hegemony, in Europe, what it's doing is placing itself for the, the upcoming battleground with China for trade. And what's happening there in particular is right across Africa. While people are looking at Ukraine, people aren't looking at what's happening at Africa, right across the Sahel um, with China and um, the United States battling for markets right across Africa. And not just China and United States, Australia too. 250 Australian-based mining companies operating in sub-Saharan Africa at the moment and being backed by American troops and private military corporations. And all this forms together to be access to resources that are cutting out Russia, because Russia through the Wagner Group has also been moving in to Africa, but has now been forced to retreat because it's concentrating all its efforts on the Ukraine and puts a war for markets in sub-Saharan Africa between the West and China, brings it to a boiling point. And Australia, of course, plays a major role in the West's opposition to China because of our proximity. Let's get back to World Press Freedom Day. The couple of sentences I read to you at the beginning... We have to remember now Julian Assange. Of course. 
We have to remember Julian Assange. We're talking about World Press Freedom Day, and while the West wants to point out to us, while the Western media wants to point out to us the failings of Russian-based media in, re in reporting, one, uh, one doesn't need to look far, particularly being in Melbourne. We need to remember organisation founded in Melbourne by a Melbourne lad some years ago, um, WikiLeaks, and the way that they've published a whole heap of documents, as I say, including documents from the State Department that show that they knew what they were doing with Ukraine, with NATO expansion. And um, Julian is now, as listeners would be aware, sitting in Belmarsh Prison. So, well, last Wednesday week, actually, the British High Court um, determined that he could be extradited to the United States. So we're just, it's now in the hands of the British Home Secretary, Pretty Patel, to sign the documents sending him over to the United States where he faces 175 years imprisonment. Did you notice how the Australian media covered this? I noticed it, it, was, it was deafening by its absence. Yeah. Nobody wanted to talk about it. Well, not nobody, a few people talked about it. Here's the other thing that's happening is that even when people talking about even when the media cover Julian Assange's plight at the moment, it's done so without any politics. People might see, might have seen um, a thing on one of the commercial networks about Julian and Stella getting married a few weeks ago on Channel 9, I think it was, and there was no talk of the politics. It was put in terms of, almost in terms of, there's this cheeky bloke from Australia. He mucked up a bit and he got some people's noses out of joint. But now, look, the Americans are going too far. There was no talk about what he exposed. There was no talk about, you know, the collateral murder video or the Vault 7 and Vault 8, the US diplomatic cables. Even the people who are on Julian's side, ostensibly, are not talking about why he's there. This is part of the whole um, magic of the media. They can appear to be on Julian's side, while at the same time not actually being on the side of his politics. I'll just read again that last sentence of what I read earlier. It is also a day of remembrance for those journalists who lost their lives in the pursuit of a story. They keep up with Julian. That could be him too. Yes, he could well lose his life. I mean, it'd be wanting to minimise... The effect on journalists like, of course, Khashoggi, who lost their life, who literally lost their life, it could be argued that Julian has lost his life in some respects. Since 2011, he's been holed away. That's 11 years. His health has deteriorated. He's suicidal. At what point does life become their life? Life isn't just the maintenance of a of a functioning brainwave pattern and heartbeat. He's lost a hell of a lot. But there have been a lot of journalists around the world who have lost their lives. And we need to, rem we need to remember them. We need to remember them. When you think of Julian, you think of the message that it's sending to other journalists who dare to cross that line. Well, that's why they're doing it. They're not doing it because they want to punish a naughty boy. They're doing it to say to people... If you expose what we're doing in places like Ukraine, if you expose this, this is what will happen to you.
not just people like um, Julian being put in jail, but, and, you know, people talk about the show here, but that was Saudi Arabia. People like, you know, I'm Maltese, Jan. People like um, Daphne Caruana, who was involved in the Panama Papers expose that mentioned even people like our own Prime Minister at the time, Malcolm Turnbull, ended up being killed by a car bomb outside a house by vested interests. This is happening all over the place. The reason I'm talking about Julian rather than the others is because I'm a Melbourne bloke and he was a Melbourne bloke. And we need to look after homegrown Australian journalists who speak the truth. And many thanks to journalist and activist Jacob Gregg. And if you'd like to hear more of Jacob, you can tune in to the Friday Rave at 5pm here at 3CR, of course on a Friday. Kofiyas are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kofiyas and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kofiyah to an array of modern designs, all scarves are $35 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Where your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done by law, 6 p.m. Tuesdays. Hi, I'm Ahmed from Fidra Primary School, and you're listening to Community Radio on the 3CR. In January this year, the group Witness Against Torture marked 20 years of men and boys detained at Guantanamo Bay Prison in Cuba. Witness Against Torture is a grassroots, non-violent activist group dedicated to ending torture and detention at Guantanamo. One member who has been active for many years is Helen Shea-Atinga, a main coordinator, living in Washington, D.C., when we spoke, I asked Helen first to look back to 9-11-2001 and her first reaction to what was taking place. As someone in, living in Washington, D.C., I was very concerned about my partner who was downtown in an office and who we had just learned that the Pentagon had plane crash into it and everybody was leaving the city um, especially those people that lived around the Capitol or the White House or any of the public buildings. And she was down in that area. So I was very concerned about how she was going to get home. There was a gridlock. 
she walked a lot of the way home, which is about six or seven miles. I was horrified. I was hoping it wasn't somebody that was a Muslim. I already knew I was afraid of already what was the targeting of of Muslims in this country was was already a reality. And it was a very frightening time. How long after that did people become aware that men and even boys were being taken to Guantanamo Bay in Cuba and the circumstances of their capture and treatment before they went to Cuba? That happened on September 11th. By that fall, they were already talking about you know, a lot of national security stuff. I think it was the next year, as those of us who were anti-war proponents, peace activists, were concerned about the all the talk about revenge, all the talk about war against this strange enemy that wasn't a country. It's hard to put it all together. What was the first inkling then that Guantanamo Bay was going to be used to take these men? or anyone they wanted to? Well, it was about the time that it happened, I think. I think we knew, we were hearing in the news that people had been brought to Guantanamo Bay. By the next year, the Center for Constitutional Rights was already trying to figure out who was there. There was a, a newspaper that was trying to get find out who was being sent there. We were not concerned about Guantanamo Bay at that that point. We were concerned about keeping the country from going to war with another country. We were very concerned about stopping the United States from attacking, you know, going into Afghanistan simply because there were some alleged terrorists in the the foot in the you know in the mountains of of Afghanistan. We were opposing what the United States was about to do militarily. Um, it was in the context of all that that it was discovered that they were capturing people and that we began to be aware that, that this prison was being built, that had been, you know, people had been brought there and put in wire cages. You say we. Who were those with you? Well, I was actually looking for a community at that point. I went to the first anti-war uh, rally by myself. I didn't know anybody at that point. I, I was just not an activist. I was an old anti-war activist from the 70s. I was an AIDS activist more than anything. I was an AIDS expert. I had not been thinking about being politically active in the context of the government going to war again. So when it began to happen, I was looking for a community, and I found a group of people that were protesting against the war. It was the beginnings of Code Pink. It was the, the women who were fasting in front of the White House through that winter. It included Mary McGuire. She was there with them from Ireland. Peace activists who were saying, don't go to war which was the beginning of, of Code Pink. And I went down late that winter to, to join what they were doing because I needed to get active to stop the government from going to war. And it was only after I 
risked arrest in one of the rallies, um, got arrested, met some other people who went to court and found local peace activists that I felt really compatible with, that I found like-minded people within this, this mass of people that would show up at the, you know, at rallies. Well, two or three years later, we knew about Guantanamo. It was already well publicized. And a group of people in that did not involve me, the original people in Witness Against Torture, had organized a group to go to Cuba and uh, try to reach the men and visit them in Guantanamo in the prison. They went to, I believe it was, the Dominican Republic, and they flew to Cuba, and they flew to Santiago, Cuba, and then they walked the 90 miles to get to the base, and they fasted and prayed at the at the gates because the they were not allowed to go across to get in. That was 25 peace activists, largely from the Catholic Worker Movement and the um, the War Resisters League, when they came back, they realized that they had to do something. They had to continue the work that they were doing. That was the inception of the Witness Against Torture, being in contact with the lawyers who were trying to get access to the men. They learned that the people inside had heard that they were there and that, that felt supported by them. And so they decided to go keep going and that next year, on January 11th, which was the anniversary of the opening of Guantanamo, they organized what I participated in. I heard there was a rally. My group went to to join them. We were given orange jumpsuits, which we put on, and we put on black hoods that they had made, and we just followed orders. We they said, okay, now get in, get in rows of, go two by two, and we're going to process from here down to the federal district court, ask for uh, habeas corpus petitions for all the men. So I got in an orange jumpsuit along with over 100 other people, put on a hood, marched with these people. It was a very moving experience. And we were marching silently. We were walking. And uh, we stood in front of the in front of that building while other people went inside and began singing and bringing habeas corpus petitions, which they tried to take to the chief, chief judge, they were arrested. But that was the beginning of my, my involvement with Witness Against Torture. And ever, every year since then, I've been part of this coming together to fast in Washington, D.C., and fast for a week and stay with, you know, stay in a group of people who does guerrilla theater, does various kinds of activities to try to educate people about the fact that the men, these men have been tortured by our government. They have been locked up without due process, without the rule of law, and that we have to speak out for them and we have to be there in a way that is in solidarity with them. So every year we've done something new and um, creative. And so I have lots of stories I can tell you about the things we've done. 
Can I just take you back to 2006 when you joined? What did people know then about how many men were there and what the treatment was? How did you find out? We only knew what was being told to us by the lawyers who finally had got access to the men. They did not get access to the men for the first two or three years. They could not speak to them. The, the government, Bush's administration, managed to keep them completely separate with their insistence that they didn't have any, any constitutional rights in this country because they were offshore. So we only learned things from the lawyers when they finally had access and from people like Carol, Carol Rosenberg, who was the reporter at the Miami Herald, which is the place where the military center is that rules the base in Cuba. CENTCON is in right outside of, of Miami. So she, and she was part of, and, and at a certain point, they began to have to allow journalists to go down there and they gave them I'm sure you've seen the media they they give them sort of some sort of access and let them see some things but they don't let them talk to any of the prisoners and they don't let them talk to most of the prisoners so what we knew was from the lawyers and we were hearing hor- we did hear horrible things at that point about the, the what what the men were enduring we already had the president saying that the, the conversations were being had in the in the media that the Bush administration had approved enhanced inter- interrogation. His lawyers in the Justice Department were giving excuses, finding what they were calling legal language to enable the prisoners in Guantanamo to be interrogated in ways that we were later obviously amount, admitted to be, amounted to be torture. Waterboarding was one of those, those things that they, that they, they, the term waterboard, which, which is just a, one of those words that people use to describe drowning. Drowning somebody to the point where they feel like they're drowning and then, then turning them over so that the water doesn't really drown them. You know, really horrible things, humiliating things. Uh, we knew already way back then that they were humiliating the prisoners based on they were using their religion as a, as a basis for psychological torture. They were humiliating them sexually, which was religiously very unacceptable in their faith. And we knew that they were being hung by their hands. The Abu Ghraib scandal let the whole world know what was going, you know, the sorts of techniques that were being used in Abu Ghraib in Iraq. But those techniques had been used in Guantanamo. They were exported from Guantanamo to Iraq. The man who had, I guess he was a general, who had been in, in Guantanamo was later sent to Iraq, and, and those, those techniques were exported there. Were the lawyers allowed to disclose what they saw and what they were told, or were they bound by 
certain something was like silence when they came back. They were not allowed to disclose almost everything that that was specific to the men themselves. They were not allowed to say. They they knew all kinds of things that that they would have lost their security clearances for had they disclosed it. But they could generalize. There were there were certain things that they were able to say in general. And how widespread was that knowledge in the country of, of what actually was being meted out to these men and boys? It, it all depends on who people were, what what news people were listening to. I listen to Pacifica Radio. I read uh, newspapers that are progressive newspapers. I read the the information that is being gathered by progressive journalists. But the the government was saying these these men, when they were brought to Guantanamo by plane, they were the kind of evil men that would have, if we hadn't blindfolded them and um, put earmuffs on them and shackled them to the floor and put diapers on them because we weren't going to touch them during the time they were going across the Atlantic Ocean, they would have chewed through the um, the cables, the air, airplane cables, in order to make the plane crash. They were saying horrible things about the they I'm talking about is the military. The quotes that, that the, the mainstream media in the United States was getting from the military were giving the impression that these men were beyond redemption and they had to be sent to this place. And you have our assurance that everything is legal and we can put them there. We're just trying to protect the world from these evil men. And that's why they're there. So the, the general public was feeling relieved that these people were being brought from the Middle East and locked up in Guantanamo so that the people that live in the United States would be safe. How long was it before you and your friends could actually speak to a detainee, one that's been released, to find out the truth? Or was it possible that there were guards who left the army and were willing to describe what the place was like? Not for years. I remember specifically one person who was a, um, talking about the staff, who was a medic, who was a physician's assistant, I believe, who refused to force feed the detainees. He said he had done it for a while. He said, I just, I can't do this anymore. This is disgusting. This is, this is not acceptable. He was sent back. I, I don't remember the details, whether he was discharged or if he was simply, he resigned, but he was bound to not talk about his time working at Guantanamo. I remember he lived somewhere in the the Northeast. I don't know what the details were, but he ended up, he wasn't able to just keep a job within the military. That's too far back for me to remember, but I do remember that many people were, as the years went on, there were some people who then spoke out when they got out of the military. 
after they got out, after they left the National Guard or whatever they were in, they uh, spoke out. How many of the released men have you been able to contact with? Over those years, as a few were released, were you able to connect with any of them? No, no. None of them were released, just simply released to say, okay, sorry, you're a free person now. The the first people who were sent back to places like Britain or David Hicks, they were trying to get back to their lives and interviewed by the media and Mostly, we didn't try to contact them. We were happy that they were back to where they were, and we li- we read what they had to say. Back in sometime like 2010 or 2011, we did have two people from our group who flew down to Bermuda and met with the three men that were sent to Bermuda and met with them, came back with reports of how they were doing. We we weren't asking them about what happened inside. I don't think we would have been interested in trying to gather information from them about this horrible experience if they were trying to get on with their lives. It's wonderful people like Mansoor Daifi and the people who have been capable of healing enough that they could talk about it publicly and be speaking out about the horrendous things that happened to them. Uh, Mohammed Slahi, the people who have published books, we've had them speak in panels that we organized so that we could share information that they had to had to say. That was years after Guantanamo was opened. The evolution has been quite profound. You're listening to an interview with Ellen Sietinger, the main coordinator of Witness Against Torture. There are 743 men have been transferred out of Guantanamo. Many of them were sent back to Afghanistan, but most of them were sent either accepted by their countries, like the ones to Great Britain, or they were not safe going back to their countries and it was not known that, and they were sent to third countries where they were in terrible situations of not knowing the language, having a very small Muslim community in the in the country, having the United States have having forced the government to sign an agreement that they would keep monitoring the men and to make sure they didn't quote go back to the battlefield, even though they never were on the battlefield in the first place. We began to be a little involved with his last name is Diab. A, a man who was sent to Uruguay as one of three men who were sent to Uruguay in South America. And, of course, none of them spoke Spanish. All of them had been terribly traumatized. And we had one of the people who was very close to our our community made contact with him sometime probably 2015 or something like that. He was in terrible situation. He had no idea what the agreement was that had been signed by the Uruguayan government and the United States. That's all top secret. But the government was for about a, you know, for some time had been providing some support to him, to each of the men to have a housing. But at a certain point, they were supposed to get jobs. 
and they were they didn't know the language they had been tortured they were torture survivors they were emotionally needed support needed social services social support social workers they were a long way from home without a community we tried to figure out ways of being supportive to Mr. Diab and it wasn't possible there was a local group that was trying to provide support and we did try to send some contributions to them so that they could could provide some of the um services that they needed but it was clear that this this one example from this one example it was very clear to us that any of the men who went to third countries had essentially been exiled they were in exile I don't know what happened to the men there were three who were Uyghurs ethnic Uyghurs from China who had been rounded up by the by the United States who were sent to Palau in the middle of the Pacific Ocean these men who grew up in the steppes of Mongolia find themselves in the middle of the Pacific Ocean on a little island where they don't speak the language I don't know what happened to them I do know that our commitment now in witness against torture this year has been to begin to try to support some of those men raise some money because our government is not doing anything we've developed along with two other groups the Guantanamo Survivors Fund to raise money and provide some of the need meet some of the needs of the of the men that are in in these especially the ones who are in third countries where they've been suffering and exiled and not receiving the support they need to get get their lives back and how is that fund going to work we we know that we have access to a hundred of the men just from from being able to to reach out and con- contact them we're raising the money now we've launched our first fundraising campaign for the last 10 days of Ramadan we're planning to ask the men reach out to them and say we've got this fund we don't have a lot of money but what would you, what do you need let us know what you need and and how much you think would would help you and then we're expecting to make that of that money which is going to be in US dollars get it to them within the country that they live in probably through an NGO or perhaps through a direct wire service like Western Union I don't know we have that part we haven't worked out yet because we're still systematizing what the questions are that we ask them but um it's a very exciting campaign I can send you the the link to the website if you like yes Helen how many remain in Guantanamo and what are you able to do for them there now are 37 men left in Guantanamo we have access to them only through their lawyers what we're able to do for them is fast in solidarity with them when they go on hunger strike protest in Washington make a make a visible reminder that they're there we twice now this year on January 11th because of because of covid we didn't gather in in DC but those of us who were local made a banner that said 
President Biden, why is Guantanamo still open? And we went to Lafayette Square in front of the White House, and we had a rally there with, in orange jumpsuits and black hoods and held our signs and held the banner, uh, tried to attract media and used social media to extend the awareness that Guantanamo was still open because a lot of people don't even know it's still open. A group of us went a couple of weeks ago and did the same thing with the sign. We stood in front of the White House with our banner that says, President Biden, why is Guantanamo still open? We did that nationwide on January 11th. We had people up in Maine in their local communities doing the same thing. The the farthest west was a uh, small group of people on one of the islands uh, which is still part of the United States, the islands in the um, right off of Washington State between Washington and Canada. And they actually went out in orange jumpsuits and held signs at the ferry when people were leaving on the ferry to go to work on the mainland. We're a little grassroots organization that has for years been doing actions and also gathering with other organizations like Amnesty International to do phone calling to Congress people um, to try to mount more pressure on President Biden at this point. I mean, that, that's where we're at now is pressuring President Biden to do the right thing and take action instead of being so timid in what he's doing. And so we're turning our, we're turning our, a lot of our attention to supporting the men who are released because it doesn't stop there. We owe reparations to these men, to all of them. None of the men who have been released have been charged with anything. They were never charged with anything. They didn't accept plea deals. There was no negotiation. They were simply released with the supposition that they must have been terrorists or they wouldn't have been brought to Guantanamo. Most of the men who came to Guantanamo were there because they happened to be Muslim in a foreign country in Afghanistan or Pakistan from some other country or they were from some other part of Afghanistan and the warlord whose territory they were in um, decided to kidnap them and sell them to the United States for bounty. The U.S. at the beginning of the war had planes and dropped flyers over the regions where they thought that al-Qaeda was in Afghanistan, Pakistan. They didn't even know at that point, saying, we will give you $5,000 for anybody that you think is a terrorist, is associated with al-Qaeda. And there were many people already in Afghanistan, especially because it was a place where people like the people from the Uyghur people from China were coming to Afghanistan because it was one of the places where they could try to make some money and send it back to their families. It has a porous border. People came there. There were also people who were coming there for religious training. They went to the, the places to, you know, to the Muslim schools there. So people who were, quote, foreign, but they're Muslim, the local warlords would say, oh, look, there's, there's somebody that's a, a you know, He's not part of us, and they captured them, or if they were their enemies from another another tribe, 
they would um, capture them and make some money. $5,000, that's a lot of money in Afghanistan in 2001, 2002. So most of the men were completely innocent, not having done anything. Even the men, though, that were part of a uh, group that was the Taliban, say, most of them didn't have any idea about the United States. Their work was in the Middle East. What they were doing was in the Middle East. Yet all of those people were deprived of their human rights. They were tortured. They were detained. They made a legal category for them that was called enemy combatant instead of calling them prisoners of war because they would have had to treat them under the rules of the Geneva Conventions. They made it very clear that these men did not qualify to be protected under the U.S. Constitution or the Geneva Convention. That's why they were sent to Guantanamo, was because they had a legal rationale for this offshore place that they could just throw away the rule of law. That is the central evil of Guantanamo. Can I finish up, Helen, by asking you about the artwork of the men inside, the publications, the poems, the diaries, the letters? There was a time when there was an administration over the prison at Guantanamo when they actually sent people there to help do therapy for the men. They gave them art supplies. They allowed them to do artwork. And some beautiful artwork was created. Much of that artwork made it out of Guantanamo with the lawyers and has been displayed in two different museums that are accessible online. But there was also clandestine artwork that happened. They made things out of styrofoam cups. We had one year a photo that was sent to us by a one of the lawyers, of a, a beautiful blue lantern that one of the men had created out of junk that he found all over the place, like styrofoam cups. One of the people who's very involved in raising money for the, for the Guantanamo former detainees did an, a whole art exhibit after he learned that the men were writing their poetry on styrofoam cups because that's all they had to write on. They would use their fingernails to write and to draw beautiful pictures on their styrofoam cups when they had nothing else. So his art exhibit creates ceramic cups that are images of styrofoam cups that we were able to have for a tea ceremony one of the times when we gathered and we were fasting. But there are many many ways that the artwork was redeeming for the men. It gave them, uh, it has probably continues to give them an outlet for the pain, for the suffering. And I'll send you the, the links to where you can see some of the artwork that made it out online. Under President Trump, they made the rule that the artwork would no longer be allowed to go out. It was a property of the U.S. government. And um, they destroyed a lot of it, artwork that was there. It was devastating to the men. And they, they're still 
uh, groups of people who are trying to turn that around and enable the men who make art to take their artwork with them when they leave. The ones that are still make, doing artwork now and are being told they can't take it with them because it belongs to the U.S. government. It's such a set of bizarre contradictions for the government to be so cruel, for the military to be so cruel to men that they haven't even charged with any crimes. Ten of the men are being charged in kangaroo courts completely that, that called military commissions, but they can't see the evidence against them. The government's not able to use most of the evidence that they think they have because they tortured them to get that evidence. And so the defense lawyers continue to say, you can't use that evidence. So it's a bizarre travesty of justice in and of itself for the military commissions have been going on for over 10 years, yet they've not been successful in convicting anybody under the under them. So the, the artwork is breathtaking. One of the books that talks about the artwork in detail is Mansour Adaifi's book in which he describes he describes what happened when the when they had created a beautiful room. Some of the men on one of the open communal sections of prison had created a beautiful room. They had drawn uh windows on the walls done all kinds of wonderful things. Uh, they had created things out of soap. They had stuck things on the wall with soap to get them to stick. Very creative ways of, of making, you know, making something beautiful in a very ugly situation. Mansoor published his book last year. It's called Don't Forget Us Here. It has some beautiful descriptions of the impact of being able to make art and then the impact of having that destroyed and taken away. Apart from the activists who have stuck with these men for all those years, including yourself and your friends, we have to acknowledge the lawyers, defence lawyers, and the ones who have visited the men in that hellhole over those years. Absolutely. They've done remarkable work. Many of them came to the work from a perspective of, well, we have to deal with, uh, uh, you know, the rule of law of the United States. We have to do this because they do have habeas corpus rights. We've got to do this. But these were many of the lawyers started out being um, corporate lawyers who have a very conservative perspective politically. But, but when they saw the way the men were being treated, they were just horrified. But the Center for Constitutional Rights is the organization that first took this on. Michael Ratner of the Center for Constitutional Rights went to bat for the men at Guantanamo knowing full well that it was an unjust situation, uh, not just because government was trying to skirt the, the rule of law, but because they had been rounded up They've done incredible work, all the lawyers. It is now called the the Guantanamo Bar. It's the Guantanamo Bar, and there are lawyers from all over the United States that have been part of it. But the the core lawyers are at the Center for Constitutional Rights, and they're a remarkable group of people. Do have a look at the webpage of Witness Against Torture. Also their Facebook page. 
Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots, you know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, Fill in the Dots. 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a footnote bombs fly on the road and I had like this fist with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. Subscribe to 3CR. Where else can you hear radical news, analysis, music and opinions? Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. Thank you, 3CR. We love you. Today I'm joined by Jessica Morrison, Executive Officer for Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, APEN, since 2011, and an occasional guest on the program. Jessica, I'd like to start with two areas that were briefly touched on by Fahad Ali when he was on the program two weeks ago, the first being the 2022 National Public Poll. Who were those polled and what were they asked? So APEN commissions an opinion poll... Um, that's an independent opinion poll. YouGov ran it. They found a 1,000 random people who undertook the online survey. APAN's been commissioning surveys for quite a number of years now with other Palestine solidarity groups. So there are 1,000 people polled, and what they found overall is that Australians absolutely want to support more action in support of Palestinian human rights, unsurprisingly. The majority of Australians believe that we should be recognising Palestine, that the International Criminal Court investigation into war crimes in Palestine should be supported, that Israel should immediately end its occupation of Palestine, that Israel and Egypt should immediately lift their siege of Gaza. So that was across the board, all of the things where the current Australian government has been a block 
to Palestinian human rights, Australians said, no, that seems unreasonable to me. The most interesting one for me is that um, earlier this year when Amnesty International released their report saying Israel is committing apartheid, Scott Morrison's response was, well, all, all countries make mistakes. We're going to remain a staunch supporter of Israel. And only 14% of Australians thought that was a reasonable response that the majority of Australians said we needed to actually act on this report, not kind of pretend that it's it's no big deal and this is just a bit like a parking fine. I'm wondering how many of those thousand people were ignorant of what's happening in Palestine. Yeah, now what we found is a lot of people said they don't know. So when I'm talking about the majority of Australians, this includes what we found is about half of the people, a bit more than half of the people, felt like they were happy to give a view and almost all of those were supportive of Palestine. Um, and then there are quite a number of people that says they don't know. And I think that that just means that there is a whole lot of work to be done still in people understanding that um, Ukraine isn't the only country that's experienced invasion and that Palestinians need to have their human rights respected. Well, it's a bit difficult, isn't it, Jessica, when the whole media just concentrates on the war in Europe rather than worry about people in other parts of the world who are suffering from aggression? Absolutely. You know, you would have a hard time arguing that racism is done and dusted in this world, really, when you look at which conflicts get which attention and when we're happy to boycott and when we're not. Palestine supporters would know that the boycott movement that's been called by Palestinian civil society, the biggest kind of call coalition in Palestinian history, has called for boycotts of Israeli products and countries, companies that profit from the occupation. That has been widely condemned as anti-Semitic, as aggressive, all sorts of things, which is ridiculous given that boycotts have a long and proud history in all sorts of social change movements. Um, so we surveyed people about that as well, and we found that um, half of Australians thought that boycotting Israel um, were reasonable. And only 14% of them said that they were unreasonable. So again, we've got that, that playing out in the figure that half are like, of course it's reasonable to use the boycotts as a strategy, and a tiny percent said they were un unreasonable, and a whole lot of people weren't yet sure. How does the results of this poll fit in with APAN's pre-election campaign? Yeah, so what we want to let politicians know and candidates know is that this is where the Australian people are at um, and it becomes a tool for us to stay, have some guts, stand up for Palestine because the Australian people are with you. Um, not only is it the right thing to do, but the Australian people are with you on this. So APAN has... Uh, got a few things going on at the moment in the lead up to the federal election. We've got some bumper stickers um, that we can send to you wherever you are, within so-called Australia, that is. Um, so we've got stickers going out around and jump on our website, apan.org.au, to order yourself a sticker or a bunch of stickers for you and your friends. Um, and also we are inviting people all around the country to email their local candidates and find out where they stand on Palestine. All the emails to candidates referring to this opinion poll data. 
say, I want you to stand up for Palestine and many other Australians do as well. So we invite you to jump on our website and, and send an email to your candidates um, and maybe order a bumper sticker as well. The second issue I wanted to talk to you about was the year-long ban on six Palestinian civil society groups that was designated in October last year. Yes. Who are those organisations and what has this meant for the people in Palestine? Yeah, and the context of this is that Israel is continuing to and ramping up its attacks on human rights organisations and Palestinian civil society generally. So many organisations have had their offices raided, their equipment confiscated, even members of their staff arrested, and of course because Palestinians live under Israeli military rule, um, Palestinians can be held for months if not years without being charged with anything, and that's what's happened in terms of these human rights organisations. So as you mentioned in October last year, Israel ramped up this by designating six human rights organisation as terrorist organisations. And it is a ridiculous charge. I mean, they are organisations like the Defence of Children International, their Palestine office, Defence of Children International is an organisation around the globe that advocates for children's rights. They're focused a lot on the issue of Palestinian children in Israeli military detention. So that's one of the organisations. Another organisation is Al-Haq, which is a legal advocacy organisation and advocates for international law. You know, it it is not an organisation that advocates breaches of international law. Um, And, you know, Al-Haq is the affiliate of the International Commission of Jurists. Um, This is a really reputable organisation. So that's the second one. There's Adamir that advocates for Palestinian prisoners. Um, there is a women's union organisation. So these are really mainstream organisations whose bread and butter thing is to advocate for human rights. So it's not only that Palestinians are being maligned as terrorists, but even to advocate for human rights to be respected is being, being maligned as well. And of course there was absolute uproar when Israel designated these six organisations. All countries, including the US, said, show us your evidence. Show us your evidence. And six months later, of course, they haven't been able to because there is no evidence. These are human rights advocacy organisations. We, unfortunately, a number of European countries particularly withdrew their funding from these organisations because you smear somebody with an accusation, then everybody gets really nervous. So European organisations withdrew their funding or suspended their funding to these organisations to to see what the outcome was. But of course, six months later now, um, much more than six months later, um, Israel hasn't been able to substantiate its its accusations at all. So a group of UN human rights experts uh, last week said that um, the international community must immediately reinstate the funding to these organisations. Has Australian government got involved at all? The Australian government has been very typically anti-Palestinian um, and hasn't raised any concerns about those. When asked about it in Senate estimates, they, they said they had asked Israel for further information. Um, but the tone of their answers wasn't that there was, you know, a deep concern about this and Australia would be, had consequences if um, Israel was overstepping its mark. 
but more that, oh, we're interested and we'd like to know some more information about this. So, it's a, I mean, it's a horrendous overstep uh, by Israel, again, about trying to shut down advocacy of Palestinian human rights. Yeah, well, you've talked about imprisonment of Palestinians where you've got Mohammed al Halabi. He's been in detention for six years. I mean, that's absolutely appalling. Absolutely appalling. So Mohammed al Halabi was running World Vision in Gaza up until his arrest when he got pulled out of a checkpoint um, returning from Jerusalem to Gaza, um, to his home in Gaza. For six years, he has sat in an Israeli jail and faced horrendous interrogations, including torture that's been so bad his hearing's been affected. They, Israel said that he had confessed to crimes that he never has. They're accusing him of embezzling a whole lot of aid money, predominantly Australian aid money, as far as we can tell. So much of the information is hard to get because Israel has closed cases. Um, but next Tuesday, the 9th of May, Mohammed al-Halabi will face his 169th court appearance. The court case wrapped up last year. Evidence from the prosecution um, finished in the middle of last year. Um, and defence was, you know, not afforded time in court because the prosecution used it all up. Uh, so they had to put their final submissions in writing. And then the Israeli court said, oh, no, that's too long. You need to shorten your submissions. It's, you know, just the process issues with this case have been horrific. And as Palestinians say, there's nothing different about this case than how Palestinians day in, day out are treated by Israeli military courts. Um, but we've, we've been following this one in detail because he's accused of embezzling Australian aid money. So the court case wrapped up last year and there has been no verdict. This hearing next week is exactly the same as the hearing three months ago, which is to go to the Israeli Supreme Court and say, we have not convicted this man of anything, but we'd like another 90 days of keeping him in detention. So it's just horrendous that this sort of situation goes on and on. Even the Israeli Supreme Court, last time in, in February when the Israeli authorities were asking for another 90 days, they said, well, well, surely you're about to give the verdict in this case. Like, why would we be giving you another 90 days with this man being charged with nothing? But here we are, 90 days later, and Mohammed's still in jail, still hasn't been convicted of any crime. And even World Vision, who is a very careful and cautious organisation, said they have followed this court case incredibly closely and said they have seen no evidence with everything that they've been involved in, no evidence at all that would make them suspect that Muhammad is not innocent. Is this persecution of Muhammad just another way to put pressure on non-government organisations to force them out of Palestine? Absolutely. All this is really connected. Um, the attacks on aid to Palestine have been ferocious for at least a decade now. And you can link all these things back to incredibly conservative organisations, predominantly in Israel. So before Mohammed al-Halabi's arrest, there was a legal challenge by a tiny Israeli organisation called Sharat Houdin, who wanted to impugn that World Vision's aid um, to Gaza was funding terrorism. And, you know, a year after that, 
Um, there was the Daily Telegraph in Sydney had a front page kind of spread about Union Aid abroad programs and imputing that they were linked to terrorism. So there is a concerted campaign to try and smear aid to Palestine in saying that it's, it ends up funding terrorism. So it's a cheat trick, but it, um, you know, it's one of those words terrorism where everybody freaks out and so Australian government funding to Palestine has been decimated under this current government and they have used kind of these accusations almost blindly using these allegations because they're found as baseless every single time but it 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 works to make governments nervous. Ramadan has ended for 2022 has it been a particularly violent month for the Palestinians? Yes, Eid Mubarak to any Muslim people out there. I um, hope the month of Ramadan has been a good one for you. What we remember is that last year during Ramadan, attacks on worshippers at Al-Aqsa Mosque and the, um, the moves to demolish and shut down protests about um, Palestinians that were being forcibly evicted and transferred out of, of East Jerusalem, all those things uh, escalated and the Israeli forces continued to escalate their force up and up and then there was the assaults on Gaza which led to many Palestinians being killed and houses demolished and the tower housing many of the media, major media outlets in Gaza being completely destroyed. So that was last Ramadan. This Ramadan, Israel has continued some of its tactics. It has restricted worshippers of Al-Aqsa Mosque. It has um, fired tear gas into the mosque. It has done all sorts of things that have been incredibly offensive and, um, as well as provocative for, for Muslims during this Ramadan. So no, many Palestinians have been wounded throughout this time. And there have also done that. That's Jerusalem, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. But all throughout the West Bank, there have there have been so many deadly night raids of Palestinians. It's one of those horrific things where I actually don't know what the latest count is, but it is, I think nearly 50 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli military forces throughout the West Bank uh, this calendar year through these night raids. They burst into people's homes and, you know, often they're sh- ready to shoot. Nakba Day, the Palestinian catastrophe, It's observed on the 15th of May, not too far away, when in 1948 the Zionist militias invaded Palestine. But we need to go back one year to 1947, and that was the approval of the UN partition plan for Palestine. That's when this started. Yeah, well, look, it started many decades before that when um, the Zionist movement was sending people to Palestine to try and colonise the land there and buy land off Palestinians or indeed buy land off progressive Jews um, that had lived there for a long, long time. And so they had been building their forces. But yeah, so in 1948, Palestinians would say the Nakba began, where at least conservatively 700,000 Palestinians lost their homes um, and were forced out. A majority of Palestinians at that time, hundreds of villages were depopulated Many, many lost their lives, of course. So on the 15th of May every year, Palestinians and their friends commemorate Al-Nakba of 1948, but also recognise that 
the dispossession of Palestinians from their land continues to this day. So on Sunday the 15th of May at 12 o'clock, Free Palestine Melbourne is organising a vigil, a Nakba Day vigil, where the names of all the villages that were depopulated, um, many of which were subsequently completely destroyed, many of whom have been, you know, rebuilt as Jewish-only neighbourhoods um, and villages, all those villages will be recognised and Palestinians' catastrophe will be acknowledged. 12 o'clock at the State Library. And for anybody listening online, um, our website also has events for, for um, around the, Australia. But in Melbourne, Sunday the 15th of May at 12 o'clock at the State Library. Thank you, Jessica. Lovely. Thanks, Jan. Always great to chat. Jessica Morrison and do look up APAN's webpage, apan.org.au. This is Ari Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. Do you love Channel 31? Do you have a favourite program you just can't miss? Or even a favourite Channel 31 personality? If you love your local community TV station, well, there is a way you can help. Head along to c31.org.au and click the big old donate button. Your contribution to your local station will help to keep us on the air. Making more of the quality TV you know and love. Plus, you'll help to make sure our team can continue to provide access, training and education behind the scenes to hundreds of young Victorians. That's c31.org.au. And click on the big donate button. Thank you. A 3CR supporter. Nuclear-powered submarines and missiles, estimated cost $171 billion and 20 years to build. Will subs be obsolete by then? Dr. Margie Beavis, Vice President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War and Co-Chair of ICANN, International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons, is one of a growing number of Australians saying that they don't feel safe and secure as the government seems to think by spending all that money on these weapons. Margie, can we start by focusing on the four reasons you put forward in your article published by Pearls and Irritations titled What Really Makes Australians More Secure and then go on to what the government should be doing to make Australians safe. So what are those four? It's really interesting. These submarines, when you look at them, you really sort of have to step back and say, why are we getting them and what are we getting them for? Because if you want to defend Australia, these submarines are less able to defend Australia. They are designed as what they call hunter-killer subs, which go out a long, long way and would presumably wait near, for argument's sake, a Chinese submarine base and then try and stop the Chinese submarines as I said, a hunter-killer submarine. You're only getting eight. They're very long-distance subs. They are not designed to defend Australian waters at all. And in fact, Hugh White, who's commentator, said that we would be much better off getting, for example, the German submarines. I mean, the Germans, Germans offer submarines at four billion each, so you get a lot more submarines for your dollar, and they would be much 
these would not be nuclear submarines, they'd be conventional submarines, but they would be much better suited to defending Australia. So the first point is these submarines are not designed for defence, so they make it harder to defend Australia because we have fewer of them and they're just designed for distance rather than having more subs around defending Australian waters. Secondly, that with the technology, they really reduce Australia's ability to control their own affairs. We would be very dependent on the US for the nuclear propulsion technology. As a result, less able to determine when we use these submarines and when we don't, to get them serviced and other things. So we don't have the technology here and we're basically in, we're already largely outsourcing foreign policy and these submarines mean that we are actually outsourcing our foreign policy. You don't have an independent foreign policy at present. Thirdly, and very concerningly, these submarines undermine the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Uh, Australia talks very loudly about the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty as the cornerstone of our approach to disarmament. Well, these submarines will be the first country that is not nuclear-armed to have this nuclear propulsion technology. And it's a large amount of effectively nuclear bomb fuel that is sort of highly enriched uranium that needs sort of loophole in the safeguards of the non-proliferation treaty to be useful. Once Australia does this, there is a whole line of countries that would want to do this as well. You know, South Korea, Japan, Saudi Arabia, many countries that would then want, and this in turn would take a lot of highly enriched uranium out of safeguards and be a real problem in terms of nuclear non-proliferation. And finally, There's something quite absurd about, if you think about driving a 20-year-old car, we are ordering a car, ordering subs 20 years ahead of time, assuming that the technology that we imagine now will still be appropriate then. And the development of anti-submarine technology, underwater drones, all these things mean that this is a piece of extraordinary optimism that these submarines will not be soon made obsolete by competing technologies that develop over the coming 20 years. And a fifth reason, which I didn't note in the article I wrote, but fifth reason is also that this submarine deal has really spooked our neighbours, that in Southeast Asia and in the region, Australia is basically starting an arms race. Um, we are, our defence spending is, is ramping up and up, and it's very concerning for our non-aligned neighbours. Indonesia has made comment against it. There's various countries that have. So there's many reasons why these submarines are really highly problematic, and not to mention extremely expensive. I mean, they're they're, they're quoting up to they're saying up 100, around 100 billion, when in fact analysts are saying at the moment 170 billion is more like it. And given the delay in building them, we're going to actually have a big gap in our submarine fleet because we're not actually planning for the near term. We're planning for the long term, and and Yes, it's it's a mind-boggling piece of announcement, if you like. This government specialises in announcements, and frankly, I think these submarines will actually probably never happen, but they make a very good distraction. That's it, isn't it, that distraction? Yep, an announcement that will probably never happen. And also, has they talk about them being built locally, and that's sort of like trying to hand something back to the South Australians who had their motor car industry stripped away by Tony Abbott and Joe Hockey. So there's, there's politically, it looks, politically it's a nice piece of marketing. And then you think of all this kerfuffle over 
China and the Solomon Islands and as that person from the Solomon said, Australia makes decisions like this, we weren't consulted. <laughs> Hardly. The, the, the spending on diplomacy in the last budget was cut yet again. They've cut foreign aid. We're supposed to spend something like 0.7% of GDP. We're now down to less than 0.2. We're one of the meanest countries in terms of the OECD recommendations. And the diplomatic core as well as that has been cut. This government is currently preparing for war whilst it's really savagely cutting the foreign aid and the diplomatic skilled diplomacy that works to maintain peace. It's 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 so short-sighted and really irresponsible, really. Margie, if you had control of the purse strings, where would you be putting the money? Well, they talk all about security. Um, Australians must be more secure. Well, our health system and Medicare are sort of slowly, slowly undermined. Before even COVID, um, the AMA came out saying that they had stripped $32 billion from hospitals in the previous four years. And what this means, I mean, my background is in general practice, and what you see on the ground is people having to wait really long times for important procedures. I mean, people waiting years to have joint replacements, people waiting six months to get a test to see if they've got bowel cancer. There's lots of shameful underfunding of health when they say this is a public health system that will cover you well they're not actually funding it well enough and in general practice from 2013 for a very long time they did not index general practice which means that the gap for people going to general practice you either pay more as a gap so you're paying sort of an extra $40 on top of the Medicare fee or if the doctor is running to the Medicare fee they will see you for sort of six or seven minutes because Running a practice is very, you know, you've got to pay for the nurses, you've got to pay for the receptionists, you've got to pay for the building. About half of all the costs in medicine go to the infrastructure, not the actual doctor. Anyway, that's a side issue. But basically, from a healthcare point of view, they have stripped hospitals, they've stripped primary care, aged care. I mean, you just have to look at the, I mean, the, the title of the Aged Care Royal Commission, I think the interim report was neglect. It's also this... It's false economy to make people wait for surgery because when they get there, they're sicker and they stay in hospital longer and the whole thing costs more. It's false economy to force people into aged care because you haven't funded enough home care. And most older people much prefer to stay in their own homes and it's much cheaper to support them in their own home with cleaners and with carers than it is to send them into aged care, yet we're still there's still a major shortfall. That's the health side of things. I mean, certainly in in aged care, the realistic nursing-to-patient ratios would be great and decent wages for the many, many people working in that system would be also really important. It's also, I think, you need to look at the background um, issues that what makes people... They talk about the determinants of health and things that are the determinants of health, are things like food and housing and all those things. Now, poverty in Australia is growing over 3 million Australians, so about one in eight, live below the poverty line. And most are sort of, well, sort of about 250 a week below the poverty line. I mean, Newstart is a disgrace. And the worst affected are, in fact, children of single-parent households. So there's the poverty amongst that group is something like one in six. In fact, one in six children overall of the people in poverty. Newstart, we are... In 2019, we're the worst in the OECD, and with 
the little increases that have come since then, we've moved just above Greece, but we're second worst in all of the countries in the, the over 40 countries in the OECD. So that says a lot about how badly funded New Start is. Homelessness, we have over 100,000. In 2016, which is the last census data that is available, they found that 106,000 people were homeless. So it's probably considerably more than that because the census data is, they do their best, but it's hard to count homeless people. But we have a shortfall of, of buildings that is not, the current public housing has been stripped and stripped and the current construction doesn't keep pace with the rising need, um, let alone address the 430 thousand dwellings we need to try and fix that. Other issues, <laughs> I can go on. I mean, family violence. That's, family violence is the primary reason that women and children seek specialist homeless services. But despite this, only about 3% of these people in desperate situations get long-term housing. And in terms of short-term accommodation, there was there's just an example. There's Australia-wide, a major shortage of emergency shelter. But in the last 18 months, three-quarters of the women who went to the Hobart's women's shelter were turned away because they just didn't have the room. And these women with family violence also often need legal aid. And the, the Law Council came out in 2019 saying that hundreds of millions of dollars Cuts by successive federal governments have pushed legal aid to the brink of collapse. So only about less than 10% of people who live under the poverty line actually qualify because it's so underfunded they've had to strip away and strip away and strip away who can actually access it. There's more, but quite shocking that we say that submarines that might arrive in, in 20 years will make us more secure than actually addressing the, the need that's sort of right Really obvious. Looking back on what you've just said, can we sheet all this home to neoliberalism, privatisation, or is there more going on? I think it's complex. I think it was Julia Gillard who said that budgets were about priorities and you could tell what people prioritised by what they spent. So certainly the, the last few years since Tony Abbott was elected, they have stripped away so many social services and so much important social support. But I think it was also happening before that. I think that that people, this myth that low taxes is good. Well, low taxes means we have underfunded hospitals. Low taxes mean we have more homeless people. Low taxes mean we have all these public services just get stripped and stripped to the point that they're no longer accessible. And the inequality, the rising inequality in Australia is really... You just have to look at the sort of lack of strategic long-term planning when it comes to climate change. I mean, it's just outrageous and, and would be very cost-effective. I think there's also a, a because neoliberalism is also in the, the failure to see that acting properly in these issues actually often will save money rather than spend money, but they, they can't see that the privatisation trumps everything. I mean, we've got over 100 public servants in Canberra working on this submarine deal for 18 months, and they have a budget of over 100 billion, as we know. But imagine if we had those 100 public, over 100 public servants working to work out with Indigenous people how to close the gap in Indigenous health outcomes. Or imagine if we actually did that in terms of climate change, that we could really turn things around. But beyond neoliberalism, the other issue, as I said, the many issues, state capture is a big problem. I'd recommend to all your listeners who've probably heard 
put out on state capture last month, which outlined not just the problems of political donations and lobbying, but also people with interests being embedded in government at various different levels. So, for instance, the one that springs to mind is putting Nev Power in charge of the COVID recovery, who's a gas executive. And surprise, surprise, he wants huge subsidies for gas in the recovery for COVID, which is just outrageous. I mean, it's sort of like how they managed to make that marketing spin stick is beyond me. So I think it's as well as neoliberalism, there's also state capture. And, and the sooner we get an independent commission against corruption, the better, but also the sooner we look at what are the priorities that people are funding. And, yeah, I think I'm, I'm really keeping every digit I have crossed that we can have a change of government with hopefully a change of priorities. Also, Margie, the reliance and exploitation of overseas workers in many areas, particularly health. Yes, I think it's 30 years ago I was working in America and I was astounded at the concept of the working poor, that people would have two or three jobs and still be in poverty. And that's come here. We've imported that concept and using international imported labour force is a big part of that. Yes, it's a conscious political choice to do that. And the current unemployment rate, mind you, you can be employed if you've been over and got one hour's work a week, but is also a reflection that we are no, not importing at the moment the same number of people to take the very lowly paid jobs. In the health service, in, in nursing homes, the hourly rate, I'm told, of about a bit over $20 is significantly less. You can get working as a checkout person in the supermarket and the work is much harder, I can tell you, much more challenging. But it shouldn't be lowly paid? Absolutely not. It should be valued properly. I mean, it's totally wrong that you explain. A lot of the health aids in nursing homes are from overseas, the majority, because they're the only people who will take the paid work at such a low pay, and, and these, it should be properly funded. I mean, just spending 100 making our elderly safe and well, it's, it's really wrong. And perhaps is that part of the change from calling nursing homes to care homes, the fact that there's virtually no nurses in many of them? Federal and state-regulated nursing homes, or, or aged care facilities, as you say, at a state level, I think the regulations are much tighter and that was really interesting in the COVID pandemic. The state-run facilities, which had better nursing patient ratios and better staff pay, did much, much better in terms of deaths from COVID. It was the federal government's poorly run, poorly regulated aged care facilities that had the massive attacks of COVID and coped with it extremely badly. So it's really shows up in the level of care that you know if you actually look properly and you need to provide sufficient staff for them to be able to do that. And Maggie also the the money that's going to private schools and private universities that should be going to the public sector to train nurses, to train doctors. Yes, the privatisation of the education system. I mean what happened to the university sector during COVID was appalling. The government sort of singled them out as not suitable for JobKeeper. And now the universities are in a very bad place. The public universities are cutting staff at the lecturer and associate professor level. The more senior staff, so they're making all those staff redundant so they can employ cheaper, much less experienced staff because they've 
their funding has been cut so greatly. And the public system versus the private education system has just got worse and worse. And it's fundamentally, again, emphasising inequality in our society and perpetuating it. We should be training the nurses. We should be, we should be we, we, having had a world-leading university sector, I don't think anyone would describe the Australian university sector as world-leading anymore. Finally, Margie, you've retired from general practice. Are you still involved with teaching in universities? Yes, yes. I'm still teaching at Melbourne University, which I really enjoy. Um, I do some tutoring of medical students and I also teach, I do some lectures on um, public health and ironically nuclear waste disposal, which in Australia is a contested issue, but that's <laughs> a whole other can of worms. Do you find the students stressed? I think COVID has sort of shifted the equation. A lot of the subjects have gone from being competitively marked to being what we call hurdles, which means they have to reach a certain standard, but beyond that, they're not marked. And I think that's very helpful in terms of these students realising that there's an important standard to reach, but whether they get 75% or whether they get 80% is not going to, shouldn't be keeping them awake at night. It's actually a real pleasure to teach the medical students because they're such, they've, they've worked, they're post-grad students, they've worked their butts off for years to get into medicine and they're so motivated and they're often very interesting people who've done some interesting things. So I actually get a lot of joy out of working with them. And um, we certainly do teach them strategies to try and help them not get stressed. I think the, the stresses come when they hit the hospitals and when they are interns. The interns and the junior doctors, particularly at the moment when the hospitals are so understaffed and underfunded and so stretched with COVID, everybody is behaving as if COVID has gone away. Well, if you look at the graphs on COVID hospitalisations, they're going up again, as are the deaths, as are the ICU beds. And given the hospital system was really stretched before COVID, I have relatives and friends who are working in the hospital system, and it, that is extremely stressful, that the, these junior doctors are really... And the nurses, nursing staff are likewise, are under enormous pressure. Have been for two years. Yeah. You must be concerned that the government is dropping the using it of masks and other areas. I get why they're doing it and publicly everybody's sort of over it. I've been to a few events at the Comedy Festival and I'm sitting there with my N95 mask <laughs> and there might be sort of 10% of the people with a surgical mask on and the rest of the people are not wearing any sort of protection. And that's, I mean, I, it's a wonderful thing that Australia has been so well vaccinated with the first two shots. It's a great shame that the third shot, which is probably completing the course, is not anyone who's listening out there who hasn't had their third vaccination, go and get it, <laughs> because it does make a big difference. The first two shots will be wearing off, and you need the third one, and I have just had my own fourth one. So I think the vaccinations have really made a huge difference to how people, when they catch COVID, how sick they are, but I think it's a complete myth that the, fact that the um, pandemic is over, and it's also there's nothing to stop another variant coming along in the middle of the year or later of the year. Also important that people get their flu shots. You know, that these vaccinations do make a huge difference when they catch these bugs. Okay, keep well, Margie. <laughs> you too, you too. It's a funny time. Thank you very much. Always great to talk to Dr Margie Beavis. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.